Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Salty Pastor Podcast. I want to welcome you to a podcast designed to help you in two very specific ways. First, a qualitative understanding of the Bible. The more you listen, the longer you listen, the more you will know about the Bible. Second, how these deep truths of the Bible, these biblical principles, are the key to navigating what is going on in your everyday life. My name is Jesse Mayer. I am your host, and we cannot do the Salty Pastor podcast without our very own Salty Pastor, Dr. Douglas Peak. Well, welcome everybody. Feeling exceptionally salty today. Oh, exceptionally salty. <laughs> We're in for one. Is that because, uh, I mean, we are celebrating a very special week for you. This is uh, 25 yep. years of ministry here in Foothills Christian Church here yes, in Boise, Idaho. Yes, very exciting. How's that feel? I mean, I was approximately seven years old when you started here. <laughs> does, that, how, does that make you feel better or worse? <laughs> Well, it's just kind of interesting how the Lord works. I, you know, it's just neat to, I think it's, I think it's important to go to a place, be in a place for a long time. It's really helped me grow and mature, you know, uh, so many people who have are in a situation now where we can run from ourselves. You know, you do right. a job and it doesn't work out the way you so want. You we can get another job somewhere else for more money. And and uh, one of the things is uh, I can't remember the philosopher who said this or the theologian who said this, but he said a long obedience in the same direction. And it's just kind of staying in one place, learning and growing. And, and personally, for me, I think that's been really good for me. Right. It's made me a much better leader, much better pastor, a much better follower of Jesus. So well, I'm I very think, excited. About I think it. it's brought a lot of stability too in talking to the elders. I mean, I've only been here a little over a year mm-hmm. and some change, mm-hmm. but in talking to all the elders and a lot of the staff and long-term congregants, they just say, you know, having some, you know, having the same pastor, having a lot of the elders have been here for yeah, an equal very long amount time. of time. Mm-hmm. And they said it just brings a stability like a, a, a it, there's not big rocks in the boat even when things are bad like during covid and stuff there you guys were just so solid for all of us yeah. and so i think that well and, you know that is a great thing stability and the other thing about it is it's just fun because uh there there were couples that uh i performed their wedding ceremony you know and then i dedicated their children when they got pregnant to baby uh, their babies to the lord and then those kids grow the up babies are now and now married. the babies are getting <laughs> married so <laughs> It's just really interesting that way to to be honored to be a part of people's families for so long intergenerationally and that's just been really neat. Awesome. Well, let's dive in. We're currently in our study of Galatians, mm-hmm. and this book is all about rules as we're learning, mm-hmm. uh, how we perceive rules, what is the significance of rules, and one point Paul makes is that we if we misjudge the point or, or a purpose of the rule, mm-hmm we can get way off track. Yeah, and that's what the whole book is about is that the Galatians had gotten off track because someone had deceived them about the nature of rules. And we talked uh, on Tuesday in Galatians chapter 3 about the the one of the rules is that you have to choose if you're going to live your life based on self-justification, and I'll explain that in a moment, or being justified by Jesus. Uh, self-justification is this. It's when you, you know, you justify yourself by yourself. You find out what the rules are, what the expectations are uh, of yourself and of the world around you. And then you live your life in a way to keep them 
perfectly. And this seems to work well when you're younger, you know, you set expectations and goals to try to work towards those things. Uh, Paul calls that a religious approach. It's the law for the Jewish people in particular. They had the rules spelled out to them by Moses. And so there's like, well, let's just follow these rules. And if we do really well, the blessing of God, the promise of God, or just the great life is available to us. The second option is being justified by God himself. And this is a really interesting approach to life. If you think about it, for if there is a God, then you were created by him. And if you were created by him, that means you're created for a purpose. Your life has a purpose. And you have to ask yourself a simple question. Do my choices in life make a difference? Do they make a difference in what kind of person I am? And do they make a difference in the quality of the life that I'm going to live? Well, the obvious answer to that question is yes, right? Uh, The reason for this is technical in nature, but it's based on the foundation of cause and effect reality, space and time, and the fact that you're a free will sentient being. So those are really critical elements. And that is, is that I have free will, but I live in a cause and effect reality this is newtonian physics and then you add to that the notion of einstein's theory of relativity and the concept of time and that is is that i basically i can't go back in time and do something differently to get a different outcome i can only make a decision right now based on my free will with the information i have to make a decision i hope it's a good one because i want a good outcome you know so that is the second option. And if I'm living that way, I can never justify myself effectively. Hmm. You see, I can't do it for a lot of reasons. Number one, I don't know the future. Number two, I can't fix the past. And number three, I never have all the information to make a perfect decision. Right? Right. So, so when I choose the first option, it has all these effects in my life. But the second option basically is, hey, I am going to justify you because I'm your creator and this is how it works, which is really different. So in essence, the question becomes, which option has the greatest potential for me to achieve the best version of myself? Which option allows me or you to live the most free, the most joyful, the most happy, most fulfilled life. And that's what Paul's talking about. Now, I said there were some effects of the first choice. If you say, well, what I want to do is find out the rules of life, and then what I'm going to do is live them the best I can, what does that do to you over a long period of time? Well, the first thing it does, and I've, I've noticed this anecdotally and as a pastor being in people's lives and just getting older and wiser, I've seen this, but psychology has researched this and proven it to be the point as well. And that is this, is that when you live based on the first option, and that is I'm going to justify myself, I'm going to, I'm going to live in a way that makes me happy based on what I want, and I'm going to say I'm a good person based on my own judgment. Well, 
actually what that does is that results in a division with other people. It shallows your relationships. It makes them more shallow. And what it does is it creates segregated type living. You tend to look only for people who think like you, look like you, dress like you, act like you, value what you value because you're trying to reinforce subconsciously your own sense of value Mm -hmm. and worth. And so you've heard the old cliche, most of us judge others by what they do and we judge ourselves by what we intend. And so we give ourselves grace, but we're really harsh with everybody, everybody else. else. Yeah. <laughs> we tend to do that way, which when you pick the first option, living according to the law or a religious system, which is when, whenever we use the term religion, what we're basically saying is you're trying to figure out a way to make yourself feel good about yourself and your soul. You're trying to fill your soul your own way. And uh, uh, it's all based on your own effort and your own decisions. And so... We look at other people, if we live religiously, and we say, man, those people should, and then you fill in the blank. But then we judge our own selves and our own flaws on the basis of grace. We say, well, I'm only human. I'm not perfect. Give me a break. Well, I didn't intend for it to come out that way. I didn't intend for it to hurt people. I didn't intend this or to go bad. But what we're doing is we're saying, I want grace. I want to catch a break because I'm not a bad person. But I want you, all these other people, to be judged based on what they actually do. And, of course, Jesus inverted this whole concept when he said, look, the same standard by which you judge others, you will be judged. And what it is is a consistency thing. And what Jesus is trying to get at is when you live on a religious-based track, you end up judging people so much more right than if you live on the grace faith track and so uh your relationships uh become shallow they're filled with conflict and you're going to have an inability to really bond with somebody else because your love for them depends upon the value that they add to your life and so you live a life of annoyance you're constantly annoyed. I, I know a lot of women who are married who are constantly annoyed with their husbands, you know. And since I've been in one place for a long time, I know a number of women who were annoyed with their husbands. And so they divorced them. Hmm. And then they went out and said, well, I'm going to go out and find this guy. And da, da, da. now I'm not trying to say that maybe there wasn't a legitimate reason for the annoyance or for the thing. But I'm just saying I know some women who divorced their husbands for not a really good reason. Right. But they were just going to go out and find a new person who's a better person. Da, da, da. And they just came to the conclusion is that all men are that way. And my response has always been, well, in all these relationships and in all these men that you've ever met, there's only one common denominator. <laughs> and that's you. Maybe it's your expectations and the way you, you're, you're looking at it that is wrong. I know men who've done the exact same thing. You know, their wife doesn't do what they want or fulfill whatever they want. And so I know men who've left their wives for not good reasons. They just do it. And they get down the path and they go, man, what a mess I made of things. You see, this is when we try to self-justify, we elevate our own wants and desires over everybody else's. And then we seek to reinforce those desires 
Well, you can see when everybody starts living that way, how that creates more division. It doesn't allow us to really, really bond. The other thing it does is you're, you, you get, as you get older, you get harder on yourself. Uh, you're less loving and kind towards others because you see if you, if you shift over to the faith side, what you do is you realize, look, I'm not perfect. I'm, I'm never going to be perfect. I'm justified by grace, which is a wonderful gift to me. And then that allows me to see greater value in other people. My expectations of you are more in line with my expectations of myself who, that's living under grace and faith, right? right? And so now I see more value in you. I, I see the potential of what you can become. And I get to be a part of what God is going to grow you into. So I can be gracious and loving and encouraging and kind. And, and uh, what happens is I see greater value in other people. And this causes me to love people more deeply. I have deeper friendships. I have a better marriage. I have a capacity to love other people unconditionally. And psychology has researched this over and over again, states that the more you love some other people, the more compassionate you are towards other people, then the more joy-filled your own life becomes. So the first option creates within you what the Bible calls self-abasement. You get really, really hard on yourself. You, you're, over time, your abilities, your flaws, they become paramount in your own psyche, your inabilities, you know, your flaws. In your own psyche, they become paramount. You think about all of those things. And then you start thinking about, well, I should have done this and I could have done that. And I should have, would have, could have. And you start living that way. Consequently, your image of yourself diminishes. Instead of seeing yourself as a creation of God, which God wants to move through to do great things in, you're living under a religious system, which you know in your own self you haven't been able to live up to. So you become bitter and you can become angry and you can become... Uh, offended constantly and annoyed and you hate kids and you hate people and you hate all this and and all because without realizing it and this is why Paul brings this up and why this argument is so important to understand because you like the Galatians were bewitched Isn't that an interesting word mm. he uses you were bewitched without knowing it you were tricked into living your life trying to justify your own value to yourself instead of flipping the switch as paul says and living justified by jesus christ and christ alone so so we get to choose what we live our lives yes. based on but what about this concept that if we live only by grace and faith everyone will get you know super lazy or <laughs> nothing will yes. ever get done where is the incentive for people to do better uh, push themselves and, and grow in order to help the world become a better place well it's interesting because that's what the judaizers that was one of their arguments against paul and that is and this is why in romans he says you know we live under grace and he says but do we go on sinning so that grace might increase he goes well that's ridiculous right you know you don't understand what grace does you know because grace transforms you and the fear is is that people won't work hard and that uh in particular uh let's 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 get really practical and that is this is what's going to undermine really really good parenting right because you don't raise your kids 
based on you're justified by God and faith, you base them, you, you raise your kids based on discipline and love, right? <laughs> right? And so I see that that is exactly what Paul is talking about right here in chapter three is what good parenting is. He says, look, we were initially under the law and the law was our guardian and it taught us right from wrong. Well, good parenting is you must raise your children under the guardian of the law and the guardian of the law is cause and effect. Bad choice, bad outcome good choice, good outcome. It teaches right and wrong. It gives you an objective standard by which to judge your own behavior, right? This is what turns kids into phenomenal teenagers and amazing adults. The research on this is so overwhelming of how to develop kids. If you raise kids starting off teaching them no right, no wrong, just there was this notion uh, by Dr. Spock for a while is that kids are innately pure and perfect and you just stand back and they will unfold like this wonderful flower, you know, and then everybody's had a two years old, two year old says that's nuts. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't work that way. But, and, and they're right. So what you do is you raise your kids under the guardian of the law. You teach them cause and effect, right and wrong with the hope and prayer that they will transition into an understanding of their purpose and that they're justified by by God. This is why faith awakening in teenagers is so powerful. The reason why so many teenagers have grown into young adults and millennials and are struggling so much is because they've never been able to make this shift. Hmm. You see, um, in, in a lot of ways, many of them struggle because they were taught that the law is so high, you know, in its expectations. Our world is, has such high expectations and there's no way I'll ever reach them. So why try? So they just kind of give up. And and so that's because they haven't been given the understanding of how faith in Christ actually works and how they're making a choice on how to value their own self. And when they discover Jesus and they walk in faith, this huge world opens up to them that's, that's really powerful. So the thing you want to do is have children realize that the moral foundation is good, but it's insufficient in living a completely full and abundant life because I cannot use morals to justify my value to myself. Morals are a great guide, and Paul says this about the law. You don't want to get rid of the compass or the guide, right? but you have to remember the compass is always pointing to something. What is that? True north, which is my value actually comes from Jesus. It doesn't come from a moral code. So if we just discussed the implication of this principle on us personally, how about society? How does this principle apply to the world in which we're living right now? Well, I think what we're seeing on a philosophical basis is this, is that the one overarching theme uh, in Galatians is that the law was a guardian and then Jesus Christ, uh, our King, our Lord, our Savior has come in order to justify us before God and restore us to a relationship with God. Now, both of these facts that the law is a guardian and that we are saved by faith in Christ point to an objective moral reality. See, both of these things exist outside of you. And today, the influence of postmodernism, it's a Satan of a tool of Satan that he uses in a w way in which you think. And the biggest thing that they say today is that, well, there is no objective narrative. There is no objective 
morality. But what you have to realize is, philosophically speaking, one of the most powerful proofs for God's existence is this syllogism. And here's how it works. If there is no God, there are no objective morals or duties. Okay, so that's the first premise. If there is no God, there are no objective morals and duties. Now, when you read the leading atheists today, when you read people like uh, Sam Harris and uh, Dillahunty and a lot of these other guys that are, that are intellectually sophisticated, they all actually say, yes, absolutely. There are no objective morals. There are no objective moral obligations. Well, guess what? Nobody lives that way. Right. We always live as if there is an objective moral. It's like, okay, we can't get come to the conclusion, well, it's okay to torture infants for fun. That's you can't really say that right. <laughs> under any circumstance, right? Yeah. Uh killing people so you can eat them. Not not a big thing. Not not I that's a pretty much a universal objective moral duty, okay? So, the first the first uh, premise or postulate is this. If there is no God, there are no objective morals and duties. And then the second part of the syllogism, and this is mental math, there are objective morals and duties. Therefore, there must be a God. You see, it comes from. And what's really interesting is, you know, I read a lot of atheists and listen to a lot of atheists and their positions and their discussions. And you know what? Every atheist out there right now is focusing on, they're trying to figure out how to develop an objective moral or a moral standard without an objective source. That's, mm. that's what they spend all their time on. That's what they write about. That's what they research about. They go on and on and on about this. It's really quite amazing. And of course, all of it is completely insufficient you know it's really silly when you read their arguments so um, in other areas their arguments are really really good and really powerful but in this area it's really bad this is the biggest weakness of atheism it's the biggest weakness of agnosticism and that is if there is no god there's no objective moral or duty so what happens in a society when there's no objective morality it just falls apart it absolutely falls apart it's impossible for us to have any social contract you know, as, as John Locke talked about, and that is, is that, for instance, in America, in order for us to be unified as a country, we have to have some very basic objective truths that we hold to, okay? And because of our political environment and the people that are, that are so vehement on, on either side, what is happening is that that's being lost, Um and once that's completely gone and completely lost, then all we have is power plays. That's all we have left is power. So what you're going to see is you're going to see a pendulum swing more radical and more radical and more radical. And what, what I mean by that is this, is that uh, one group will get elected, right? And they're going to want to pass more and more radical legislation, more radical social theorems and ideologies uh, regardless of how half the country feels about it they're going to just 
they're just going to push as much of that as hardcore as they can destroy their political enemies and then there some people are going to go yeah i don't like it and then the next the other side's going to get elected right right and then they're going to do the exact same thing and so what's going to happen is we're going to see these polarizations bigger and bigger and bigger and i think that's ultimately going to end and i'm not i'm not saying i want this or or hope it happens but i am saying from an analysis standpoint a descriptive uh, standpoint is that I feel that ultimately that's going to create an unhealable division within America unless we can turn the tide and say there are some basic things, some objective truths that we must hold to if our society is going to continue to be a unified country. So Paul makes kind of a final conclusion in the end of uh, Galatians 3. How does this impact our, our divided politics right now? You kind of touched on the politics already, but how can we come together as a country? What's what Well, are- this is where I'm the most hopeful of all, and that is uh, I was listening to Tony Dungy. He's a big uh, coach, and uh, he's very well-respected coach in the NFL. He's an analyst now in one of the uh, football analyst programs, and he was talking about, he said, look, uh, if we want America to heal, we're, we are long overdue for a revival. Mm. We need a revival. And fa- Paul's final conclusion at the end of this, he says, because we've all been clothed with Christ, he says, there is e- neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free man, male nor free freeman uh, male nor female and then oh, uh, in colossians he includes in this list there is neither barbarian or scythian um he kind of repeats the list in colossians and and he says we are all one nation in christ now a cursory inspection of human history will prove that the penchant of the human heart is to be divided and segregated they call this the balkanization of people groups And this is why critical race theory is antithetical to the Christian gospel. Not only is it expressly Marxist in its ideology, which eliminates God from social life, but what it also does is it approaches human beings not as individuals, not as having any commonality with one another, but only having uh, identity based on the tribe or the group by which they are identified with, and you're identified in your group by the least control factor in your own life, and that is your skin color, right, or your gender. You know, nobody gets to choose their skin color. Nobody gets to choose their race. Nobody gets to choose the language they're going to be raised to speak, and nobody gets to pick their gender. You know, you're born either male or female. So consequently, the least... uh free choice or free will aspects of what it means to be a human being are the basis for your tribal identity. And consequently, your only purpose for existence is to gain power for your tribe. Mm. And what that does is, is, is it has all kinds of ramifications across the board. And that's why uh, people in America are being balkanized, you know, and uh, all the data points to the fact that when you actually look at America, America is the most diverse nation out there. Uh, It was really interesting. I lived in Italy for a while back in 2016. And one of the things is, is that I I went on these websites. There's, there's these websites for corporations so that 
um, it teaches you how to be culturally sensitive. So when you go to another country, you don't uh, unwittingly do something that's really, really right. offensive. And my favorite one, I was reading uh, the, the Danish one, and they were saying, well, if you're in the Netherlands or, or you're, if you're from the Netherlands or from, you're a Dane, when you go to America, you need to bathe more than once a month. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. And so there's all these little guidelines that they, they give you. And so I'm looking into these and just trying to pick up because I, I just don't want to offend people. And one of the things that all of uh, like, like if you're going to visit France, or you're going to visit Greece, or you're going to visit Italy or Germany or, you know, the Netherlands or, or all, you know, Spain. It's really interesting as they say that they all everybody has the same perception of Americans. And that is, is that we are loud and crass. We're, we're rude because we'll just go up and talk to people and we'll speak in English to them. And they all feel this is very rude. And so I was over there the whole time just watching this and analyzing it over and over again. And here is my conclusion. In America, everybody speaks English, right? right. But we're the most diverse country out there. We are so diverse. I will go downtown Boise and I'll be sitting there and I, in a restaurant and there will be African-Americans sitting over there. I'll have people that are Asian sitting over there, Hispanic or Latino people eating. I'm eating. And what are we all doing? We all have a common language. We all speak English, right? Right. It's not that way in Europe at all. When you go to Italy, guess what? All the Italians look like Italians. Right. You go to France, they all look like French. <laughs> and so... What happens is when you're over there and you can't read something in another language, you look up and you look around and you see uh, another ethnicity, right? Well, in Europe, that other ethnicity speaks another language. They're from Spain. No, they're French. No, they're Italian. No, they're Slovakian. They're Romanian. See, they know all that. So they're very segregated over there, okay? And so what happens is... You'll walk up to them and you'll say, well, do you speak English? Well, see, because they're so segregated, they find that offensive. Hmm. And so, so what I found is, is that, so I dug into this when I got back and, and all the research points to the fact that America is the most diverse and the least racist society in the history of the world. Not just right now, but in the history of the world. Now, deconstructionists spend all their time focusing on anecdotal stories where they says this proves it not to be true. But when you actually look at the data and you look at the research and everything that we track, um, we find that America is the least racist. It is the most diverse and the most potential for unification of all different ethnicities than any other country in the history of the world. And I believe that comes from the early revivals. There are three massive revivals in America where the majority of people became followers of Christ. And in the virtue under the follow of Christ, your skin color, your language of origin, your cultural that you come from are all irrelevant because none of us are justified by our culture. We're not justified for value by our skin color the language we speak, the food we like, or the clothes that we wear, or even the ceremonies that we observe. We are justified by grace through faith. Mm. And that is the one thing that is equal for all of us. And so that's really important. Um, deconstructionism, on the other hand, which is a part of critical race theory, and it's a part of the postmodern 
thinking that all people have been taught for the last 40 years in our public educational system is that it never gives you an authentic picture of reality. See, it never actually shows you what the real truth is. It plays on your emotions, tries to get you to believe falsehoods. And then because your truth is your truth and there's no objective truth, then, well, it doesn't matter what the facts are. What matters is my perception of what really is going on. Right. And that, of course, ends up uh, destroying people. It's the equivalent of this, of looking at the Mona Lisa and saying it's a horrible picture because you found a brushstroke in the corner. That's what deconstructionism does. It doesn't allow you to see the whole picture and the beauty of what's happening. And so one of the reasons why I don't like these ideologies, I don't like postmodernism, I don't like critical race theory, I don't like these things, it just makes people angry and negative all the time. All they see is hate. All they see is division. All they want to do is segregate. All they want is more power, and they they look at huge swaths of people and denigrate them and call them evil. And I see this as antithetical to the gospel of Christ, and that is, is that none of us are justified with our own religious activity we are justified by Jesus Christ through his loving sacrifice on the cross that he extends to us as an act of grace and I find that the one thing that can bond us all together as one so we have a choice we can live trying to find our own value within ourselves Or we can live in a way, as Paul says in chapter 3, that brings unity and hope and it opens up your life to love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness. It allows you to see the good in things. And even though things aren't perfect, it doesn't make you Pollyannish. What it does is it makes you a realist. And that is that, yeah, life here on earth is hard because Satan's around and he keeps screwing things up. But you know what? We can still find greater love, greater compassion, greater unity, greater depth by being the people of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Amen. Well, that is it for us today. Thank you guys so much for joining us. I want to encourage you to tune in on Sunday. Um, Zach Peak will be preaching Yay. and kind of wrapping up what we've started here. And then um, obviously, please, if you can make it onto campus to help celebrate the 25th anniversary of Doug and Kim Peak, uh, please do that. But we will also be streaming that online. So if you're not comfortable being on campus, you'll be able to participate yeah. and 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 uh, be involved in that way. And we so, want to shout out to the people in Kansas that listen. We want to shout out all to all the people down in Arizona who are absolutely. listening, Southern California that listen to the Salty Pastor. We want to give shout outs to all the people in Montana. We want to give a shout outs to all of you and so if you want to kind of check a celebration and have fun and listen to people tell jokes and bad stories about me, uh, then find us on Facebook, right? Yeah, we'll, we'll do it on Facebook. We might even do it on YouTube. We're going to put out some information on, on our social media about it later today probably. So Okay. That's awesome. That sounds great. And yeah, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're coming up on 800 subscriptions, man. We're trying to get to 1,000. Get to that 1,000 marker. Thank you guys so much for joining us, and we'll see you on Sunday here at Foothills Christian Church. Blessings.